Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Holy Spirit, we love the Word of God. We would be wandering and in darkness. We're not the Word showing a light to our path. You're showing us how to live. You're showing us how to be victorious. You're showing us how to find peace and joy. Oh God, teach us the Word. Open our understanding. We give you our ears. We give you our heart. We would learn and we would believe that which is truly from you. And I would ask for the grace on me to speak your Word and not mine. And that the difference would be clear. Come Holy Spirit, pierce our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We aren't animals. Anybody want to say amen to that? If we were, life would be so much simpler. We'd go through each day controlled by our body appetites and instincts until that moment arrived when we died. And because we were animals, we would have no idea we were dying, so we wouldn't worry about it. Our focus would be on getting enough to eat, staying safe, and occasionally reproducing the species. Now, you might know someone like that, but that doesn't mean they're... Yeah, okay. But being human makes things much more complicated. As humans, we are painfully aware of our impending death. And each of us carries inside a gnawing sense that we were supposed to do something meaningful while we're here. Something that will help others. Our human children are born with an intuitive awareness of God. Without any religious instruction, they begin to ask profound questions about who made this world and why we're here and what happens when we die. And even the most powerful atheistic governments in history haven't been able to change that. You know that whole governments, billions of dollars, have been spent to try to stamp out the religious impulse in human beings. I mean, they have gone at it with a systematic, everything that was possible to do, every horrible thing that could be done, has been done to stamp out religion, and it won't go. Why? We are not animals. You are not an animal. You are not evolved pond scum. You are not one step beyond an ape. You are a special creation of God. He has designed you. There are things inside of you. There's a spirit inside of you. There's intuitive awareness that you cannot stamp out. People, this sounds like an obvious statement, but it's vital. You are a special creation of God. You have special needs. You're designed a certain way, and the world doesn't get it. And that's why the word of God is life to us. You can't survive. You can't become happy, fulfilled. You have no direction, no purpose. I was on a plane ride home two weeks ago, I think it was. Southern California, I'm sitting next to this this German fellow, and I turned to him, and the conversation just started with, do you like sports, you know? I'm quite the aggressive evangelist. And uh, we got talking, and then, boy, it turned to, it turned to uh, religion. And he, he is um, he's from Germany, he's been here about three years, and a bright man. He's a biologist, and his job is to check the data that people are producing on their research concerning AIDS. 
you know, to verify whether it's valid or, or bogus or anything like that. So he's, he's the guy that goes in and is a quality control guy on the data. So you can imagine how, how bright he is. Very bright man. And, uh, but we got, we got in and he says, well, well, I don't believe in God. And, and off we went. And, and, but I didn't have to, I, I didn't have to, to do anything. I, you know, he says, you don't, you don't need God to have um, moral values. And I said, you're absolutely right. You only need them to, to, to do them. You know, you know, <laughs> I said, so here I am. I'm a young person. Let me say, I'm a, I'm a 15-year-old kid. And you're telling me that I'm born into a universe which is simply an accident. We have no idea where it came from, but it's just, just, just physical accident, spinning around and all that. And, I, and there's, there's, it's an empty universe. There's no God. There's no right. There's no wrong. And, and we're a strange accident of biology uh, here, that uh, we've evolved, and I'm just, I'm just chemical, biological products. But don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. And, and be good and be nice to people. And be obedient. Why? He, he, he liked me by the end of the flight. <laughs> he, he did. He, he said, I, I wish more people were enlightened by... He, you know what he said? He said, he said, what we need. He said, we need a religion that isn't all tied up with this religious, this religious stuff. And we need to be kind to people and loving to people. And, and the, the lowest. And I said, you know what you just described? He said, no. I said, Jesus. He said, where's your church? <laughs> he did. And I told him. And I said, you can listen to me on the radio or something. I, I, I mean, he was a good man. Listen to me, people. When, if you'll just get down to the real issues, we really don't have a big argument. People aren't interested in religion. Neither am I. But you get down to this kind of thing. You get down to the raw facts of life, and they are non-negotiable. Any intelligent person can see these things. Hallelujah. Humanity just won't go away. We can't be turned into docile animals or contented worker bees. We can be punished for pursuing those longings. We can be deceived by aggressive, systematic indoctrination. We can become discouraged and lose hope. But when those things happen, we become miserable and have to medicate ourselves one way or another. The person who doesn't know who they are in God, who doesn't have a sense of his calling and purpose, will ultimately grow discouraged and medicate. One way or another, you have to cope and hang on till you die. As humans, we have practical needs, of course. But fulfilling those needs is not enough. We also have special needs. There are two that are particularly important. First, we need to know God. And second, we need to know ourselves. In that order, because the truth is, only God can answer our deep questions about ourselves. Only he can take us beyond the godless claim that there are no answers. And even Jesus, when he became human, though he was the son of God, had the same special needs that we do. He too needed to know God the Father, and he too needed to discover who he was. In the story we read today about a wedding at Cana, John records a remarkable exchange between Jesus and Mary. We hear these two people say things to each other that don't make sense unless mother and son had held previous conversations about his true identity. And as we reflect on the ways Jesus may have discovered the truth about himself, he'll teach us 
how to discover our own true identity. Would you look with me at John chapter 2? Verse 1, and I'm going to read through, through 11, but I'm only going to talk about through verse 5. On the third day, this is probably Wednesday of the week, uh, third day, he's just, do you recall, he's been down in, in, in uh, the southern end of the Jordan River being with the baptism with John and, and all of that, and now he has walked up to uh, his home. I'll say more about that in a minute. And they're there at a third day, a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Would you say my hour has not yet come? His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. That custom of purification goes on even today. You go to, at least I'll speak for, a, for a men, yeah, I go into the men's room in, in, in Israel and I can still often see these, uh, there'll be these cups and these various things for, for ritual washing. They have, uh, they have what, a hundred and, 50 gallons of water there because this is a wedding party. Everybody's washing feet. They're washing hands uh, after, before each meal. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw out now some water and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And then the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, but, and did not know where it had come from. But servants who had drawn the water knew the head waiter called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, be, was, this beginning of his signs, would you say signs? signs. Yeah, that's a significant word. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. In the events we read about in chapter 1, if, if they took place near the southern end of the Jordan River, just reminding you, chapter 1, we were at the southern end of the Jordan River. Uh, great crowds had come out to, to John the Baptist to be baptized. Jesus had gone out and been baptized. That's where the heavens opened. And the Father said, my beloved son, he spent 40 days in the wilderness, came back to that place where the baptisms were taking place. John looks up and says, behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Uh, in the course of it, two disciples, Andrew and John, uh, who were disciples of John the Baptist, heard their rabbi say this about this man. And at the second time he did it, they went and followed Jesus and, and spent the day with him. And whatever he said to them convinced them that he was indeed the Messiah. Uh, Peter went and got his brother, uh, I mean, pardon me, uh, Andrew went and got his brother. Did I say and Peter for the first time? I meant, Pe I meant Andrew and John, forgive me. Andrew went and got his brother Peter. John, I'm sure, went and got his brother James. Jesus found Philip. Philip found Nathaniel. And we add these disciples now. They all walk back with Jesus from that place to his home. If the events took place near the southern end of the Jordan River, it would have taken Jesus and his disciples about three days walking at a normal rate to travel back to Nazareth. 
and then on to Cana. It was a distance of nearly 70 miles. The villages of Cana and Nazareth were only a few miles apart. Uh, I measure three, some people say five. Uh, they're still just a few miles apart by that. And the fact that both Jesus and his mother held, had been invited to the wedding shows that the host family were either friends or relatives of Mary and Joseph. And since there is no mention of Joseph, it's likely that he was deceased by this time. When Jesus returned home, he arrived unexpectedly with five or six disciples. But the host family quickly invited them to attend the wedding as well. This is important. However, unless the host family was wealthy, adding five or six adult males to the guest list brought with it a significant financial impact because each additional guest must be fed. In Near Eastern hospitality, the host will go without food or beverage rather than private guests. Now, that's true a lot of places in the world. Uh, I have been in homes where I'm eating their very best and they're not eating. And it bothers me no end. Uh, I, I've been just, you know, boy, uh, as, as, as they're giving us everything they have. If they feed us, they don't eat. Now, this is, these are not wealthy people. If they were wealthy people, they would have gone out and bought more. The fact that she needs to come and say they're out of wine means they don't have the money to go buy more. And Mary, Mary's family has brought not only her whole family, and I'll tell you how many those are in a minute, but also another six, probably six adult males. They may well be part of the problem that they have brought so many people. So when the wine ran out, the host family's inability to provide for their guests became an embarrassment. And the last-minute inclusion of Jesus' disciples may have helped to create this problem. Even without them, Joseph and Mary's family was large. There would have been at least eight. And with six more disciples, they may have brought the total, a total of 14 people. This may be why Mary went to Jesus and informed him they have run out of wine. If so, she was saying to him, they're out of wine and can't afford to buy more. By including these disciples, our family has helped to cause this awkward situation. What can you do to help? I really want you to see this, because I'm going to show you something remarkable in this exchange. Jesus' reply to her, stated literally, was, What is it to me and to you, woman? The translations of this passage go all over the map. And one of the common ones is, What do I have to do with you, woman? Now, does that sound like, Puh? I mean, you know, out of my face, woman. I mean, it's just like, seriously, it is not what it says. I render exactly the Greek. And even I put in parentheses the verb. There is no verb. It's assumed. What to you, to, is it to me? What is it to me and to you, woman? His words are often badly translated, which leaves him sounding harsh and disrespectful. He was neither. Addressing Mary as woman here or from the cross is, was no different than addressing someone in a crowd who asked him a question as man. He seems to be asking her, why do you feel it's our responsibility to solve this? But then he adds a statement which lets us know that Mary must have had in mind the possibility that he would perform a miracle. He said, my hour is not yet. Would you say that again? My hour is not yet. Yeah. The term my hour, in this case, must mean the season of ministry in which he would publicly reveal his identity as the Messiah by doing certain miracles. Up to this point in time, as far as we know, he had been baptized by John, 
tempted in the wilderness, held conversations with five or six men who became convinced that he was the promised Messiah. He had exercised words of knowledge in his encounters with Peter and Nathaniel, but he had not yet done a sign. John uses the term sign to mean a miracle which fulfilled one of the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. When Jesus performed a sign, he did something that Scripture said the Messiah would do when he came. Did you follow that? There are miracles, there are great miracles, helpful miracles, and there are ones that are specifically spoken by the prophets, that when Messiah comes, this is something he will do. This business of wine is a sign. It's something that was spoken of. Judging from Jesus' response, Mary's request of him must have been that he do a miracle to provide more wine. But the problem was that if he did that particular miracle, he would be performing a sign. Because one of the prophecies concerning the Messiah was that he would restore Israel's harvest, and as a result, the vats will overflow with new wine and oil, and the mountains will drip with sweet wine. Every miracle Jesus did proved that God was with him. But certain miracles pointed to specific messianic promises. People who loved God's word would recognize what that miracle meant. And you'll notice the last statement was, and his disciples believed in him. So if Jesus were to multiply wine, it would be more than than simply a helpful miracle. It would be a way of saying openly, I am the Messiah. This he was hesitant to do. He may have wanted more time to converse privately with his disciples, but obviously, when he sought the leading of the Holy Spirit, he discerned he was indeed supposed to meet this need and was also shown how. The fact that Jesus said to his mother, my hour is not yet, tells us that his true identity was something both he and Mary already understood. Do you see that? Apparently, they had discussed the topic At some point during the years while he was growing up, there's no other explanation for a mother turning to her son and asking him to do a miracle like this. Most moms don't turn to their son and say, honey, would you multiply maybe those 150 gallons of water and turn them into wine, sweetheart? It just doesn't happen. This, there's an understanding between this woman and her son. They know, she, okay, she knows that he knows she knows who he is. He knows, she knows who he is. These two people know. Yes, and we know too. Amen. If so, she may have told him about the miraculous events surrounding his birth, probably before he was 12 years of age. It's hard to imagine that the mean-spirited people of Nazareth did not confront him with the fact that he had been conceived out of wedlock. You've got to know, they, you remember this, they, know, they knew. Mary had to flee for her first trimester and be down uh, somewhere in, 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 um, around Jerusalem or Bethlehem with her cousin Elizabeth because the town knew. Apparently, her, parent, her family wasn't going to take her in. Uh, who knows what the situation was that she had to leave town during that period and, 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 and be there with her cousin out of town. Uh, they all know Jesus is not, in their mind, a legitimate son. Now, you know the mean-spirited town of Nazareth did not ignore that fact. 
And it's equally hard to imagine that, that Mary and Joseph did not explain to him what had really happened. Why wouldn't they have told him about Gabriel's announcement or Joseph's vision of the angel or the angels appearing at his birth or the shepherds who came to the stable or the, about meeting Simeon and Anna at the temple or the visit by the Magi from the east or their flight to Egypt to save his life. While he was a very small child, such information would have been too much to comprehend, but at some point during his years in Nazareth, he would have needed to know the truth. And it appears from this exchange between mother and son, that conversation about this had taken place. John tells us that Mary responded to Jesus' initial refusal by going to the servants and telling them, whatever he says to you, do. That's the literal. John doesn't tell us why she still felt confident he might help in the situation. In John's brief description of the event, which is recalling, he's recalling decades later, there would have been many details he didn't feel led to mention. So it's quite possible that Jesus may have done or said something at that moment which indicated he was still considering what to do. For example, he may have stepped aside and begun to pray, which would have caused Mary to remain hopeful. These two people know... She has talked with him. I think there's no question. In my judgment, as I read this comment, he turns to, this, this dialogue between them is very telling. They know. They've had the conversation. It was brought up in Nazareth, and you just know, uh, Mary and Joseph would have said, honey, it's time for you to know the truth. You're a, you're a miracle. You're an absolute miracle. You, you do know that the whole first chapters of Luke are narrated by Mary directly. I mean, you can just put, you can change pronouns. And Luke is just basically writing down her testimony. That's her story. Why wouldn't she tell her son? Why wouldn't she tell her son? At the point in which he's old enough to understand this. One thing we can be certain is that she did not cause him to do something he did not want to do. You know, you can look at that picture, and it almost looks manipulative. He says, no, no, and then she turns and says, whatever he says, do it. You know, you, you can have that kind of picture, but that's not what's going on. Something took place. We can be certain she did not cause him to do something he did not want to do, for he would not have responded to anything other than the leading of the Spirit. Something he said or did... It must have led her to believe that his hour was about to begin. As we read this account, we need to remember that Mary is a woman who's strong in her knowledge of the word. Anyone who can prophesy the way she did knows exactly the sort of signs the Messiah would perform. And we can also be certain that there was no doubt in her mind that her son was the Messiah. It's hard for us, isn't it, in, in, in the religious culture we grow up in, to understand the depth of knowledge of these people of the Bible. But you have to remember, they're raised from, I mean, their school system, as it were, is the synagogue school. And boys and girls go through this in the early years. And what are they doing? They're memorizing scripture. They're learning to read from scripture. They're learning the alphabet from scripture. They're memorizing scripture. Their whole thing is they're being inculcated in the scriptures. She is too. That's why when you have the Magnificat, you read her response there. She's prophesying like crazy. She's got the word in her. And even and, and in synagogue, yes, there was a latticework between the men and the women, but the women are right there listening to all of this. 
the Lord selected for Jesus' mother a strong, godly woman who could teach her boy the word. And she did. And so did Joseph, I have no doubt of it. The word's in them. How did Jesus discover who he was? At what point did he learn that he was more than a normal young man growing up in Galilee? When did he realize that he had come from heaven? That he had existed before his birth? That, that he was literally God's son? Did he have an omniscient mind from the moment he was born? As a newborn babe, was he analyzing the molecular structure of the hay in the manger? Or had he been reduced to the bleary world of a normal baby? Of course we don't know the answer. But by watching him in the Gospels and listening to insights given to us by Paul and others, we learn that he truly and fully became a man. And thereby set aside or at least refused to exercise his divine knowledge and powers. So he must have had to discover his true identity in much the same way as we do. That's why by watching him, we learn to discover our own. Do you see that? I'm saying Jesus learned. I'm saying Jesus grew in his understanding. He discovered who he was. He didn't just, it isn't just this little baby gets born, puts on a human flesh, and, and this, this omniscient mind is working away, analyzing everything. That I, I mean, yes, that mind is there, but somehow it's set aside. How did Jesus discover his true identity? If we read the Gospels and watch for clues, we find at least four different ways, three of which are sources we can draw on as well. Number one, he heard his parents' report. As we noted earlier, the dialogue between Jesus and Mary reveals a common understanding between mother and son. His identity is no mystery to her, and he knows that. The obvious explanation is that the two of them must have, had, must have talked about what happened before and after he was born. In other words, his mother and probably Joseph, while he was still alive, taught Jesus what they knew about him. Every parent is given insights into their child's abilities, interests, and may have received prophetic words concerning their child. God entrusts parents with a special gift to pass on to the next generation. They're able to help their child know who they are. In Jesus' case, that information was especially amazing. Parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, adoptive parents, people who raise children, God gives information to. And let me, let me caution you here. You may say, well, my parents weren't believers. Makes no difference. And a person is absolutely foolish to say, and I've heard this, well, my parents have nothing to say. They aren't believers. Well, they're your parents. You've got to understand something. God established the family. He established this thing. This is his idea, not ours. And he gives to parents and he gives to families and he, treats, he thinks his way and he doesn't change the way he thinks. And so a mom has an authority in prayer, a mom has insights and discernment and wisdom, whether she's a believer or not. A father has discernment, wisdom, insights. An adoptive father has discernment, wisdom, insights. Why? They're the father. And that's who he speaks to. God honors headship. God honors his order. It's just there. And so if I don't listen to that, 
If I allow breaches in my family and in my relationship with my parents and my grandparents and my, my, who, my, 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 my elders, if I don't listen to them, I have shut off a huge voice, an extremely important voice, and no one else can replace them. No amount of psych books will fix it. God has made it that way. He listened to her and to Joseph. I have no doubt of it. Number two, he discovered himself in scripture. By the age 12, age of 12, Jesus already had profound insights into God's word. Why do I say that? Help me. Why why do I say by the age 12, I believe he's already very much in touch with who he is? Well, in the temple, correct. Remember this? Uh, they, were, they took him down at, at, I think they probably went down, I think they're devout, and I think they went down fairly regularly, but they, we, we know they went down when he was 12. Why would you take a boy down to Jerusalem when he's 12? Bar mitzvah, yeah. And they're taking him down, and, and it says they, they left Jerusalem, and at the end of the first day, which would have been about 25 miles of walking, they're in a, in a large group, that's what you did for safety, and they're, so they're, they're in a large group, He's not there. They they have to go all the way back. Now, that'll make a parent mad. (laughs) 25 miles one way, that's 50 miles of walking, sweetheart. Yeah, and you you come all the way back, and then they can't find him. They don't know where he's stayed, uh, where he is in the city, and they finally find him where? In the temple doing what? Talking to the, the elders and the scribes asking them questions and amazing them with his answers. Man, I, I, you, he already sees himself. I, you know what he's talking about. He's talking about questions like, if, if, if the Messiah is David's son, why does David call him my Lord? Uh, get back to you on that, kid. He's already aware. He's, he's already, the scriptures are opening to him. Since he had no Bible of his own, you remember this, they don't, they, they don't have Bibles. I mean, the, the, the synagogue will have a, a Torah scroll and uh, uh, other, other scriptures, not necessarily all of them. We, we, we can be sure that Nazareth had Isaiah. He draws on that so heavily. So how do they know the word? They memorize it. A, a Jewish young man or woman will have memorized often the whole, not only the Torah, five books of Moses, but they will also have memorized what we would call the whole Old Testament. So that's how you know it. You don't have it like you and I have it. You memorize it. That, it's it's kind of cool. I mean, in a lot of ways, you've, they've got it a, a good deal deeper, I think, than we do. At some point, he realized that he was the promised king he was reading about as well as the suffering one who would die violently and then be raised from the dead. At some point, he must have said, why, that's me. The Bible taught him his identity and his destiny. Look, can you imagine? It's one thing for you and me. We're reading through here and and we're saying, "Why, why, that's the Messiah, you know, and, and, and we read some of these passages. We read Isaiah 53. You know, not for that matter, you read Isaiah 49 through 53. All of this, they tear out the beard, they spit on him, they, he, he is, he's, 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 he's 
somehow beaten and damaged to beyond recognition. You and I read that, that's terrible. Oh man, what are they doing that to? At some point, Jesus reads this and says, that's me. Oh God, that's me. That, in my opinion, that is exactly what his water baptism was all about. When he showed up there with John, he had nothing to repent of. When he showed up at the Jordan River, what he was saying to the Father is, I know where this goes. I know where your path leads. I know what you've called me to do. I know it's horrible and wonderful. And I'm saying yes to you. And I think when he came to that river and when John was there, he said, John, bury me. And I believe that's where Christian understanding of baptism began right there. Buried with Christ into his death, raised with him in newness of life. Bury me, John, for I will rise again. And how did the father respond to that pledge? Heavens opened. The the, the spirit comes down on him like like a dove and remains on him. And the voice of the father says, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. That was the beginning of his ministry. He began by embracing his cross. And anyway, all right. On several occasions, God the father audibly spoke to him. But Jesus also spent much time in prayer, listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he said over and over again that he never stopped listening and watching. See, you and I are trying to do it daily. (laughs) He, He did it constantly. So he could cooperate with what the father was doing. It's no wonder that his understanding continually grew deeper. And I give you some references that talk about Jesus growing in his obedience, growing in his own. He remembered what he had seen in heaven. Now, this one is mysterious because a person's spirit is their essential being. We don't have a spirit. We are a spirit. You you follow that? I'm talking to your spirit right now, my spirit to your spirit. That's what's happening. We are spirit. It can't change without a person changing. So when the spirit of Jesus came to earth and joined human flesh, his spirit, which includes his mind, can't change. It's him. And John reports Jesus saying things that tell us that he still remembered heaven. Listen, and why don't you read it with me? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Did you notice that phrase? We speak of what we know and testify of what? What we have seen. Again, why don't you read this with me? He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. In other words, Jesus wasn't guessing when he told us about God. He was reporting what he had seen in heaven. How he dealt with that knowledge so that he would still be able to learn and grow as a human being, we don't know. Paul comes the closest to explaining this. He says, Jesus 
emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Maybe he simply refused to act on that knowledge in most cases, choosing to limit himself to human capacities. We do see that in the temptation in the wilderness, don't we? If you're the son of God, turn those stones into bread. No, I've not been told to do so. Not like I can't. I could, but I won't. For my father's not told me to do that. I'll starve to death if, if he doesn't provide. Ooh. How do we discover who we are? The same way. One, we hear our parents and grandparents, and as I said, the elders in our family, whoever they are, this has become a missing voice for many. There is a tendency to ignore, or because of family breakup, to be denied. It's one of the tragedies when families are are, are torn apart. The voice of those who watched our childhood years. As we grow older, many of us long for that voice. And wish we had listened more carefully. We're wise, if it's still possible, to ask our elders to tell us the family stories. And to listen with interest to what God, even if they're unbelievers, showed them about us. You know I grew up, my parents were divorced when I was very young, so I didn't know my father. Uh, I met him. I think it's now about 17 years ago. I, I, it's, my daughter wanted him at her, to come to her wedding, and then we found him. And that was the first time I'd seen him in 50-some years. And so I'm meeting a total stranger. It was, it was quite the trip, and I, I won't go through that. But uh, one of the comments he made, uh, I, I asked him, I mean, one, I want to know, how, how's your health? You know, what's breaking? And uh, did he have hair? No. Anyway. Um, but I, I want to know the stories. And so he's telling me about my grandmother and my great-grandmother. I found some incredible stories. And it's, it's, it's funny. It's, it's filling in pieces that were missing of who am I. Have you noticed the genealogy trend that people are going through now? A lot of people hit a certain age, and, they, and it's funny, as you get older, you go, you, you may have put this kind of question off, but at, there's a point where you go, I, I got to know where I'm from. Who, who, who am I? And you can sense it. I'm a branch in a tree. Who do I belong to? And so anyway, he's telling me these stories. But one of the comments he made, he says, you were such a happy baby. And you got to know, growing up, it wasn't a happy time, and and depression and those kinds of things, anxiety, have been my, my challenge. And so when my father says to me, you were such a happy baby, I'm thinking, seriously? What happened along the way? <laughs> what happened along the way? That tells me something. That essentially, it's wounds. Not just nature. That's an important message. He, he told me something. I, I got, okay, come on. By nature, I'm a happy person. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. The other day, um, coming home, we, we, on our vacation, the first week we went down to see our son and daughter-in-law in Arizona and spent a week with them. And then we sorted stuff at the house. You know, you, you can't get away from those kind of things. 
And then the last week, our whole family went to a cabin in Idaho, a place called Priest Lake, a beautiful place. And uh, we just all cram in to this little cab, old cabin and, and um, pad around. And our biggest challenge is, what are we going to eat today? You know? um, it's really good. But on the way home, our daughter and son-in-law were traveling with us. And, and they, uh, it was just a kindness, in a sense. My daughter starts asking questions about Mary and me. And the two of us start narrating our history. You know, from the time we were married and where we ministered and how things happened, you know. And, and they acted like they were interested. <laughs> and we're having a wonderful time. But what are we doing? We're telling them the family history. We're telling them who, they, who, who their parents are. And, and even where they were born and what the circumstances and all these kinds of things. Are, it's all coming out as part of the story. I, I, I need to know that. You need to know that. Uh, my mother, my mother, I, she made a comment once to somebody. She said, I've never taught him anything. And my thought inside is, I didn't say it, she never stopped. Uh, she's a teacher and a talker. And my mom taught me constantly. But one of the real gifts my mother gave me were these stories about my, fam- my family, in particular my grandfather and my grandmother. And so I didn't know, I knew my grandfather died when I was eight and so my real understanding of my grandfather was what my mother told me. And she told me them over and over. She drilled them into me. And so my model of a good man is my grandfather. And I'm still trying to live up to the standard. And it's not a false standard. I knew the bad and the good. But I'm living up to my grandfather. I can hardly wait to see him in heaven. These people become real to us. and They model for us and they form us. They're supposed to. It's God's way. It's not wrong. He dis- we discover ourselves in scripture. In the Bible, we discover what it really means to be human. We are not animals. We are not even angels. We're a special creation made in God's image. And he has a plan for each of our lives. He's ordered our steps if we'll obey him and numbered our days. He calls us to live at a high, disciplined level because we're his children, not animals. Did you hear that? Why are you called to, to, why are you called to live a certain way? Why can't you do what everybody else does? Because you're his children. You know, haven't, haven't you heard this in your family? You know, young people come home and say, but, but mom, dad, uh, everybody else is all my friends' parents, let them do it. And your answer is yes, sweetheart, but you're a, and fill in the name, your family name, you belong to us, and we don't do that. Right? That's the same thing going on in the Bible. You know, when you read in the Old Testament, you read these food laws and stuff, and you read, you read these sexual behaviors and all these kinds of things. What God is saying is, yes, sweetheart, but we don't do that. You know, I was looking at those food laws the other day. And God says, I don't want you eating dead carcasses you find by the roadside. (laughs) Why? You're my child. You're not an animal. And, And I don't want you eating stuff that eats that stuff. That's what that's about. Think about it. Does it matter to you? If what you eat, what it eats. There are certain fish I don't want to eat. I know what they eat. 
And those are the ones, by the way, the Bible says don't eat. By, we t- I heard, I heard a, an angry comment about, about God and says, you know, why does he care so much about, you know, shellfish? Well, I'm a biologist. I mean, biologist. I, I was a biology major, and I had a bunch of it. I've spent a month in Florida on Pigeon Key, you know, doing research on a square meter of eelgrass. Um, uh, the diurnal cycle, come on. I, I can tell you the oxygen levels, the temperatures, and, and what, what was in there. Anyway, do you know what bivalves eat? I do. And I, to this day, can't eat it very well. I just, I, mm-hmm, no. I know what they eat. God doesn't want you eating stuff that eats that stuff. Do you follow that? That's not silly, is it? That's not some ridiculous legalism, is it? That's, that, we are free to eat it. There's no law here. But I want you to understand that the kinds of things he says to them, I don't want you having sex like animals do. You're, a, you're mine. You're a noble people. You're a nation of priests. You don't live like that. And Christ calls us to an even higher standard of grace and love, mercy. He calls us out of our comfort zone. He says, you don't live like they do. You follow me. What we do, what we say matters because of who we are. Like Jesus, we must discover ourselves in the word and believe it. That's why LMI, the calling class, that's why OSL, man, I had somebody last night come up and say, I'm, I'm starting OSL, and I thought, yes, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be taught to get in the word, and it'll, it'll change everything. Listen to the Father. We too can spend time in prayer and listen to the Spirit. We too can learn to hear his voice and watch what he's doing and learn to do the things he shows us to do. And in the process... Not only do we serve others, we discover our calling and gifts and we find out how he made us. How did the knowledge of who he was change Jesus? Did it make him proud? No, it made him secure. Being sure of his identity released him to serve others. Listen, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from the supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself and then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Did you follow what that just said? Knowing that God had put all things into his hands. That is, that is, that's not insecurity. That, that he has inheriting the lordship of the universe. That he had come from heaven and it was on his way back. Took his robe off, put a towel around his waist and played the role of a slave and washed their filthy feet. Knowing our true identity will release us to do the same. I would submit to you that for you and I to be the servants of God, to serve and to take the role God has called us to do, we have to know who we are. The insecure person 
the person who's trying to establish their own identity. There's a raw nerve inside. I watched a man the other day stoop down and have to pick something up and he was dying inside and it just hurt me to watch it. And what it told me was the man was so insecure that even the posture of reaching down and picking something up in front of others shamed him badly. Look, if you know who you are, if that's deep in you, if you're solid and secure in God, not only can you get down and pick something up, you can get down on your knees and wash someone's feet. It doesn't change you a moment. That kind of knowledge doesn't make us proud. It sets us free to serve. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.